All right, before we start, I will say this is the last video I'll be making for a few weeks. I'm moving to the U.S. of A. That's right. I've been living in Korea for a number of years now, and it's time to move back home. So I'll be making a, a big move soon. This will be my last video for a while, but I wanted to get this one out there before I moved. We are talking about the excellent book Time Loops by Eric Wargo. And uh, this book I really like, although it is kind of long-winded. He, he really goes into detail, into a lot of depth. Um, so you might find yourself skipping a lot of stuff. He talks a lot about um, quantum physics, and there's a lot of detailed stuff in there you might skip. But very interesting um, information in his book I really liked. And it's about the future affecting the past and having precognitive visions of the future or maybe presentiments, just feelings of what's going to happen in the future. So the question is, can the future actually affect the past or can we have a vision of the future before it actually happens? And we're going to talk about all that. Let's just talk about just an example at at the outset here. So let's say that you have a dream about a volcanic eruption and then the next day you're reading the newspaper and you read that there was a volcanic eruption. Well, that's evidence of a precognitive dream. You dreamed about it and then it happened the next day. Um, so a skeptical interpretation would be that there are billions of people, all of them dreaming every day. So statistically, of course, a few of them will have a dream that corresponds to actual reality. It's just the law of large numbers that, you know, if there are billions of dreams, yeah, a few people are going to dream of a volcanic eruption, and it's just coincidence that that happens later in reality. Or another example is a, let's say you're at the traffic light, you're at a stoplight, and you just have this thought, this feeling that you should run this red light. You should just go right through it. And you look, you see there's no cars coming. You could go through the red light, but your conscious mind kicks in and your conscious mind says, what, what are you thinking, you idiot? That's a dumb idea. You don't run a red light. And then, bam, right behind you, a car slams into your into your car and you have an accident and then the uh, precognitive interpretation is that your mind or your brain somehow had access to the future that that was going to happen that a car was going to slam into you and warned you that that was going to happen and gave you the thought that you should run the red light so that it didn't happen of course the skeptical view would be that uh, maybe subliminally, you had glanced in your rearview mirror and saw this car coming very fast, and maybe you weren't conscious of the fact, but your subliminal, your unconscious mind picked up that there was an accident likely to happen, and that's why you had the thought to run the red light. It wasn't because your brain had access to the future knowledge that that was going to happen, but your brain picked up on subliminal cues that this was going to happen. Okay, so um, let's get into some specific examples here. Uh, one example he talks about is a woman who sent her son with a nanny to visit the zoo. 
And after she sent her son to visit the zoo with the nanny, she had a vision of her son screaming and the car filling with white smoke. So she, obviously she was freaked out by this vision she had and she called the nanny on the phone and she told the nanny, come home immediately and drive slow, right? So they don't have an accident. But then the next day, the son was complaining, oh, mommy, I didn't go to the zoo. (laughs) And so she really wanted to take her kid to the zoo because he didn't get to experience that the day before because of her vision. So the mother decided to take the boy back to the zoo herself uh, because he was disappointed. And during their drive to the zoo, another car crashed into them, causing the airbags to deploy. And when the airbags deployed, it released a powder into the air, which she had seen in her dream as smoke. And the boy was screaming in the car during that experience. So, in fact, her precognitive vision did come true uh, by the process of her trying to avoid it. And this is what Eric Wargo in his book calls a time loop. The future, in fact, sent a message to the past and she had her vision, which inevitably made that future come true, right? Because if if she would have never called the nanny and told them to come back right away, then the kid would have visited the zoo and probably made it home safely and that vision would not have come true. But because of her actions trying to avoid it, it came true. And so that's evidence that the future can affect the past to create that specific future. It's very, very intriguing. And we have evidence of this also in fairy tales. I was, in fact, just going over the book Sleeping Beauty or one version of that book with one of the boys I tutor in English here in Korea. And in Sleeping Beauty... In the version that we read, the prophecy from one of the fairies was that the daughter of the king would prick her finger on a spindle and then die. And then another fairy kind of reversed that and said she won't die, but she'll sleep for a hundred years. And so the king tried to avoid that prophecy. He ordered all the spindles in the country to be destroyed. But 15 years later... When she was 15, uh, the daughter, the princess, walked up the tower and saw a woman at a spindle and pricked her finger on it, just like in the prophecy. So the the message or the the theory is that the king trying to avoid that may have actually made it come true. And there are other examples of that in literature as well. And so that's one of Eric Wargo's theories is that whatever precognitive vision we have is not of a future that we can avert or avoid. It's of the actual future that will come to pass that we cannot avoid whatever precognitive vision uh, we have. And another theory is that it's not an objective future that we are precognizing. It's our own experience of that future, like our own reading of the future event, like reading in the newspaper about the volcanic eruption 
or seeing on television the destruction of the towers on 9-11 that we precognize. It's not that we're actually like there in an objective future precognizing, but it's our own future experience that gets relayed back to us. So let's get to that in just a second. So we uh, have to start with J.W. Dune. Um, he One of his dreams was dreaming of being in a town on the Nile in the Sudan and seeing three white men whose faces were almost blackened by the sun. He thought in his dream that they had trekked from South Africa to North Africa and wondered how they had accomplished such a feat. The next day he read in the newspaper of just that event an expedition of white men arriving in Khartoum in the Sudan who were the first white men to have traversed the continent on foot. So it was his reading of, excuse me, it was his reading of the experience the next day that gave him the precognitive dream. And another even more prescient example is his dream of a volcanic eruption and in the dream, he knew that 4,000 people would perish as a result of the eruption. Shortly thereafter, that he read in the paper about the eruption of Mount Paley, in which it stated that there was a probable loss of over 40,000 people, but Dune misread that figure as 4,000. It wasn't until 15 years later when copying the news story that he caught as a mistake that it was actually 40,000 dead. So this shows us that it wasn't the objective future that he was envisioning in his dream. It was this future based on his next day's reading of the event, which got relayed back to him in the past and created his dream. Now, you might ask, is there scientific evidence that the, the mind or the brain is aware of the future? And correct mundo, my friend, there is scientific evidence. And the name is Benjamin Libet, famous scientist, who showed that neurons in the brain begin to build up a charge and prepare for action a few hundred milliseconds before a person's experience of making a conscious decision to act. Then after the conscious decision to act, the action is completed within 100 to 200 milliseconds. <clears throat> so let's say I want to move my finger up. So his experiments show that my brain will prepare for moving my finger up 400 to 500 milliseconds before I am aware that I consciously want to do that. Then after I'm aware that I consciously want to move my finger up, I have about 100 to 200 milliseconds before it happens. So how can we interpret that? Well, first we can interpret it as free will is an illusion. My supposed decision to move my finger comes after my brain has already started the process. Or you could say, my brain has already decided to do that before I'm consciously aware of, oh, I want to move my finger up. So it's actually my brain deciding and then I become conscious and think about doing that later. But, you know, my conscious decision is only an illusion. 
My brain had already decided to do that before I thought of it. So my physical brain makes the decision and my conscious decision is kind of an illusory, illusory after effect, so to speak. Now, another theory is that the brain simply has access to future information. Uh, this would be the theory that the brain is not only extended in space, but also the brain is extended in time. So that the brain is already aware of my future decision and readies itself to enact that decision. This would just be a tidy way to keep reality in sync because it would really suck if I made a decision to move my finger and then I had to wait half a second for my finger to go up. It's like, I want to move my finger up and then half a second later, finally it goes up. So <clears throat> instead of that, my uh, brain being aware of the future, being kind of extended in time, knows what I will decide in the future so it can be ready to keep my future decision in sync timing-wise with the decision I decide to make. Now, Libet interprets the results quite uh, just a little bit differently. He says that during the 200 millisecond window from when we become consciously aware of our decision to act and the actual motion of our conscious mind, of our finger, we have the ability to shut down that action, or he calls it veto power. We can veto the decision made by the brain. So even though the brain is readying itself to move my finger up 400 milliseconds before, I will become consciously aware of it 200 milliseconds before it actually happens. And then once I'm consciously aware of it, I can say, no, I'm not going to do it. And I can shut down the action. So it's kind of... He describes it as a veto power our conscious minds have. Okay, so let's get into some more examples. Um, we talked about having dreams or visions of the future. Now, it doesn't always have to be a dream or a vision. It can be what's sometimes called presentiment, just a feeling or a thought that something bad is going to happen. Uh, there's an interesting story by the actor Alec Guinness, who was with Thelma Moss looking for a restaurant. And they were rejected by a few high-end restaurants due to Thelma Moss's attire, which uh, was unpleasant, and they couldn't get in at the high-end restaurants. So finally, they arrived at a more liberal Italian restaurant where they were told there were no available tables. But as they were leaving, the young star, James Dean, ran up to them and offered to let them eat with him at his table because James Dean had heard they were rejected. There were no tables. So I guess he was alone. He said, Hey, why don't you come join us? But before going inside, Dean showed Guinness his new Porsche Spider 550 in the parking lot. And suddenly as Guinness was looking at this car, he said he felt uneasy and a grave expression came over his face. And he told Dean to please never get in it. He said that if he drove that car, he would be dead within a week. And Guinness couldn't really explain why he felt this way. He didn't know what was going on, but he just felt, you know, Dean was going to die if he drove that car. And the uneasy feeling lasted throughout the dinner they had 
And a week later, James Dean was killed when he slammed into another car with his poor spider. So that shows you that, you know, it's not just always a vision or a dream we can see the future in, but we can just have this feeling that something's going to happen, and then it does. Now, one thing skeptics argue is that our minds, after the fact, create these false memories. Or we could say that, you know, after James Dean was killed, Alec created a false memory of feeling uneasy and telling James Dean he shouldn't get in the car. He was going to kill him. Or we could, you know, create a false dream memory after we read about an, uh, the volcanic eruption or the death or whatever. Um, so one interesting th thing that has been done is people have recorded their precognitive dreams at the time they dreamed them. And they have shown the date that they dreamed and wrote it down or took a picture with the date so that we know it's not just future memory um, falsification. One example is David Mandel, who records his precognitive dreams by drawing them or painting them with watercolors the next day and photographs the drawings under the calendar clock at his local bank. So on September 11th, 1996, and we all know September 11th, 2001 was the terrorist attacks in New York, which took down the Twin Towers. On September 11th, 1996, David Mandel awoke from a frightening dream in which he saw the two towers, he saw two tall towers crashing down in what he felt like was an earthquake. Then six months later, he had the same dream and again painted it in watercolor. And nine months after that, he drew a third dream in which he saw two twin-engine planes crash into a pair of buildings from opposite directions. And on the day of the terror attacks, he saw that the pictures on TV matched his dream with great accuracy. The New York skyline with the burning towers flanked by the pyramid-topped American Express building exactly matched his watercolor drawing. And so we can't explain that as him later on, you know, creating this false memory of having dreamed that because he recorded, he drew his dream, he recorded, he took a picture with the date that he had the dream the next day. And... Um, you know, one other theory is that it's the law of large numbers that, you know, like we said, people have dreams, billions of dreams every night. Surely some of them are going to correspond to reality. The problem is when the details start adding up. Okay, so you might dream of a volcanic explosion and then the next day read about it. But what if you dream about the specific number of people dead and you dream about the specific location and, you know, details keep adding up that correspond to the actual event. And that's where it's hard to call upon the law of, law of large numbers, I would say. Okay, and then there are experiments done. Um, we're going to talk about one more. Well, a couple more. 
One was uh, the researcher Waitley Carrington. He designed an experiment to test clairvoyance or telepathy in which on 10 successive nights, he drew the first object named on a randomly selected page of the dictionary and hung the picture overnight on the wall of his office. He made sure it was curtained off and so no one could view from the outside what what the picture was. And he had 200 participants who each made a drawing each night of what they thought he drew and mailed their dated drawings into him. He then had independent judges score them based on how closely they resembled the target on display. What he found was that for any given day, the number of hits did not rise much above chance. But many of the mailed-in drawings did match another of the drawings in the 10-day experiment. These he called displaced hits. Their picture matched a drawing that would be made one or a few days later, but that didn't correspond to the specific drawing he made the night they mailed it in. Okay. He then decided, you know, to test this, to see whether if he made a, a, a control group of drawings, if any of the images that they sent in would match those drawings. So he decided to create the same number of drawings using randomly selected nouns from the dictionary and use those drawings as a control group. And when comparing the participants' drawings of the original series to the uh, set of drawings of nouns, the subject's drawings did not match any of the control drawings beyond what chance would dictate. So it seems there was a precognitive effect there that Sometimes they were drawing thing they were making drawings that would later be made by Carrington. And Carrington wrote up an article in the Proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research in which he lists what the target drawings were supposed to be of. Like he'll he lists, you know, the first night was hand, was a drawing of a hand, and the next night was a drawing of a buffalo. The next night was a drawing of this. And interestingly, he found that the drawings sent in by the participants that matched seemed to match the content or the meaning of the original, not exactly the picture. So if the drawing was of a hand, the participants, you know, beyond what chance would expect, drew a hand, but not necessarily corresponding to the specific kind of hand he drew but that they were responding to the verbal cue of hand, and so they drew some hand, even though it didn't exactly match the, the hand that he drew. So Eric Wargo's interpretation is that, like we said before, it's that these participants must have read Carrington's article in the future, right? He wrote the article after the fact, so the participants read the article in their own future and saw what the target words were. And then that information got sent back to the past and they drew a hand based on their future reading of what they should draw. Now, I kind of have a problem with this, this theory that it's only your own future experience of the event, whether you see it on television, read about it or whatever, that's 
you're precognizing and that it's not an actual future because I just think that it would be easy to falsify that theory. All you would need to do is do Carrington's experiment over again, but in your article about it, not list what the target drawings were supposed to be of. And then if participants created drawings above what chance would dictate of the target drawings, that would mean they were actually precognizing an objective future because there's no way they could learn about what the target drawings were. Now, I'm not saying Eric War goes wrong. I'm just saying it would be extremely easy to set up an experiment to falsify his belief. And I think that would be a really interesting experiment to run. Now, let's go to one more experience, uh, I guess, experience which Eric Wargo reports on. And that's of the story from ESP researcher Louisa Rhine of a mother who dreamed of her and her husband viewing the wreckage of a chandelier that was hanging over the baby's crib, having crashed down on the crib. In the dream, the clock on the baby's dresser read 4.35. So after the dream, the, the mother awoke and ran to get her baby to take it to sleep with her and her husband in their own bed. You know, the dream scared her that, you know, her baby could die from the falling chandelier. And in fact, in her dream, she thought the baby was dead under the chandelier. Two hours later, they were awakened by a loud crashing sound. Rushing into the nursery, they saw the chandelier had fallen on the crib, just as in the dream, with the time on the clock being 4.35. Okay, so this seems like a precognitive dream which alerted the mother and changed the future, right? Because she thought her baby was going to die by the chandelier falling, so she saved her baby. She averted that future possibility by taking her baby into her and her husband's room. But we can just as easily interpret that as that um, in her dream, she just inferred that the baby was under the wreckage. That her dream was actually of that future of the chandelier falling down, but her baby wasn't there. And this would also be a time loop. It would be the future... It would be the future affecting the past. The future sending a message to the past in the form of a dream that allows her to take her baby away from that crib and therefore create that future where her baby was not harmed. Okay, so this whole thing, and I I apologize, I didn't read the entire book because I didn't have time, but I think I got enough from the book. And his theory is really that the mind is extended in time. The brain has access to this fourth dimensional future, this fourth dimensional time dimension. And I really think that's how we should think of time is as a dimension. And I talked about this in a previous video. We can think of a two-dimensional being on a sheet of paper. 
So the two-dimensional being can look one way on the sheet of paper, then it has to turn around to look another way on the sheet of paper, then turn around and it can look behind itself. But what if we take the two-dimensional being and we lift it above the paper and suddenly it has access to the third dimension, it can look down on the paper and suddenly the entire paper is visible at once. And that's what I think is possible with uh, time, is that it's a dimension, and then if we could go into that dimension or outside that dimension and view, we would see all time, past, present, future at once. Now, one big problem with the future is that we each make decisions all the time which affect the future. My decisions today will affect what's going to happen tomorrow. My decisions right now will affect what's going to happen in five minutes from now. So there are many possible future outcomes. But the fact is that there is one path that we are going to take through time. There are decisions we are going to make in one path through the future that will be actually manifest. And so I believe that those future decisions have already been made so that the specific future we will navigate through is already there and that we are just not aware of what those decisions will be or what that future will be. Even though there are many possibilities, there are specific decisions we will make all the time and there is one path we will progress through the future. And so that future already exists. And we are just progressing through it, oblivion to what that will be. So it, it um, leaves us with interesting thoughts. And I want to hear your thoughts in the comments about what you think about time and the future and what's really going on. So, interested to hear that. This is Mystic Dan, and I won't be making a video for a few weeks, so bear with me as I make this transition back to the U.S. of A.